Welcome to Winning Uglier with Brad Gilbert. I'm finally on the comeback trail. I had a little Mohs surgery on my neck, which is a little skin cancer issue. Then after that, I had this intense blue light treatment where I got burned from my head to my neck to get off all the little precancer spots. You know, all precaution. The sun has been my toughest opponent my career. Remember, wear your sunscreen at all cost. Every time you're out there, do it. And today we're going to get into little changes in your game that can make a huge difference. It doesn't always have to be a big change to make a big difference. And a lot of people fear change. And learning to be honest with yourself about your strengths and weaknesses is a big issue for a lot of juniors, club players, pros, and how they honestly assess their game. Yeah, first of all, Dad, glad to see you're doing better. Skin already looks way better. I know I know you were banged up for, for a week or two there and had to stay out of the sun. So it's it's certainly a good wake up call for me when I when I see what you have to go through to to always be extra cautious about wearing sunscreen and reapplying. But getting back to the uh small change, big difference, I think it really starts with even before you talk about specifics, because I think with 10 different people, there could be 10 different things that you need to change. It comes from that meant having that mentality of a willingness to reevaluate and always a willingness to be looking to see what you can change. So just comes from having that open, open mindset in regards to change. Before we get into uh, any, anything more on the show, I also got to give a shout out to my buddy, Eric Johnson, two-time NCAA champion with the USC Trojans that did our intro vocals. He's got the deep baritone, so an up-and-coming voiceover talent. Oh, yeah. He sounds like he should be doing like some monster truck (laughs) ad. I mean, he's got the voice. Yeah, exactly. A lot to get into today. Going to have another good set of Q&A. Got a, a classic winning ugly type question on how to beat a player that's consistently beating you. And then also one, one, one that's a crossover between tennis and yoga, which I think uh, I find really interesting as someone that, that likes yoga and likes meditation. So stay tuned for that on the second half of the show. But first into our discussion on making those small changes to your game. And I know you, you wanted to go right off the bat with a story about you and, and your coach, Tom Shivington. I landed at Foothill College January 2nd. 1980, after transferring from Arizona State. And a lot of tennis players were stubborn. We believe that we're a lot better than what we are. The results didn't say that I was a lot better than what I was, but I believed that I was on my way. But if I was honest with myself, all I had was a good forehand and good wheels. Lousy backhand, lousy serve. But I really never worked on it, or if anybody told me about it, I just was stubborn about it. So second day of practice at Foothill, I'm in the corner, I'm kind of berating myself, and Tom Shivington kind of casually walks by, and he says to me that 
if you can hit, learn to hit over that backhand, that shot can improve a lot. That's all he said. Literally, the guy that I was playing, my teammate, was coming in on my backhand on everything. I just actually thought about it for the rest of practice. Finished the practice. The next day, I think I casually asked Coach about that. And he says that if we can learn to have you hit over your backhand, all you do is chip your backhand every single time. And I said, yeah, I kind of just try to hack it away. A little bit like Steve Johnson has a two-handed backhand, and when you see him hit a one-handed backhand, that's how my backhand was. I could never hit over it. And I said, okay. And so he said, after practice, let, let's just hit a few. And so he just showed me, dropped, hit a few backhands, hitting over it, you know, from the service line. That's what we need to learn to be able to do so people can't just pick on your backhand. Then that weekend, he took it a little further. Let's, if you're available, you know, I'd like to work with you this weekend and see if we can, you know, make some progress on this backhand. I said, okay, because normally I was pretty hesitant and stubborn that the shot didn't need work, and it really did. So that weekend, we probably spent six hours, three hours on a Saturday, three hours on a Sunday out of his own time, just learning to hit the backhand. I have an Eastern forehand grip. We never changed my grip because I, I did maybe when I was 14, 15, try to go to a couple coaches and they, they said, oh, you got to go to semi-Western, full Western. I just couldn't do it. And just for some context, my dad plays with the same grip for every shot. So that Eastern forehand grip is also his backhand grip, which has uh, always been a little hard for me to wrap my head around, but it works well for him. So it didn't change my grip. Didn't change my swing. All we did was no chipping it. And by the end of the weekend, I finally started feeling a little more comfortable. So I come to practice on Monday. And amazingly, I started warming up and I started hitting over my backhand where I had never done that before ever. It was almost like it clicked. It still was nowhere near where it needed to be. But just that little bit of a tweak all of a sudden put a little more pep in my step, a little more belief. And within a week, each day the shot started getting a little bit better. And then my game just incredibly, which was kind of at a stagnant point, started to all of a sudden take on a different, you know, area and different belief. Guys that, that would thump me, all of a sudden, I could start thumping guys, but just that little belief and also to the subtlety of his voice and that he didn't say that we need to ch change your grips, the swing, anything. It was just if we could improve that shot and it gave me confidence. Yeah, I, I think the coaching message can be huge when the coach doesn't ask for too much at once. They want you to just make a little change and it just becomes easier for you to wrap your head around so you're not necessarily overwhelmed and I think that was the case with you with okay it's already a pretty big change having to hit over it but then if you got to go from only you know having only hit slices previously to hitting over it and then you got to think about a grip change as well that can just be a little bit overwhelming so I think that's where Shiv was really smart in that situation was okay like one step at a time and let's see you know if this just works like this and clearly it did 
And he also said, like, let's just keep it to one shot backhand cross court. Keep it simple, right? Keep it simple. And then all of a sudden, it, it didn't seem like it was such an obstacle. And that's normally when you make a big change for players and you see things on video, whether or not it's a hit you got to you know, switch or it's a big grip change. And then that's what becomes overwhelming to you. And you think that like, I just can't do that. Or, or all of a sudden that's going to bring my whole game down. Now from a story about your playing days to a story about your coaching days, I know you have a good little anecdote about when you first began coaching Andy Roddick in the summer of 2003, you guys had already worked two tournaments together on the grass uh, at Queens and Wimbledon and had had a very successful run. I think Andy won Queens, made the semis of Wimbledon. But when you guys got to the hard courts, I think you noticed a change right away that, that Andy could make in his return position and... If you can remember from the summer of 2003, obviously it went very well. Andy went on to win his first uh, major title at the U.S. Open. So you could just share this one. Well, it started on the grass and two tournaments. He went 10-1. and one. And before that, he actually never won any matches on grass. He told me he couldn't win on grass. But I didn't really make any changes in his game other than he couldn't wear that visor, which drove me <laughs> crazy. That was... I made that was him wear- Change number one. Yeah, change a big, a big change for yeah, you. Advisor to case. go to a bucket hat. So we get to Indianapolis. And in practice, I'm noticing that he was standing much closer for the return than he was even on the grass. I even felt that the grass, I wanted to say something to him about moving back, but I felt like, you know what? Let's just let it play out. He was standing on the baseline you know, like he was Andre, like he was Djokovic. But occasionally, Andy would make a decent return, but I felt like he just wasn't fast enough in his hands to be standing that close or needed to be. And I was thinking to myself the whole time, you serve massively. If you can move back, get a few more returns in place, especially off of a bigger serve, then use your forehand. I feel like you can set up the point completely different. And so when I told him this, at first he was very resistant and hesitant that like, no, 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 I I don't want to move back. That's kind of retreating. I said, and I I kept on it. And so finally he said, okay. And so the first match at Indianapolis, he's standing back probably three or four feet further to return serve. And he's playing this French guy, Cyril Saulnier. And I, I was thinking, you know, I'd scouted him first round. I was thinking he only had a backhand, you know, cross. He couldn't hit a backhand down the line. You know, little did I know that the next day against Roddick, he did have a backhand down the line. And he was making things very difficult for Andy. And he drops the first set in a breaker and he's furious. He's kind of giving me a little bit of the business. And I'm keeping, you know, stay with it. As it turns out, he ends up winning that match 7-6 in the third. 6-7, 6-3, 7 had one break point. He converted, and he was 2 of 12. But I, I felt like even though he didn't break nearly what he wanted, I, I remember telling him, stay with it. Let's stay back on the return. It gives you more of an opportunity to make returns instead of making one or two good ones, missing some, 
and it's going to click for you. And that was one of those matches. Had he lost that match, who knows if we go to Washington the next week that he it, it was willing to make that change. So as it turns out, he won that match. He stays with staying back. And I did tell him that like, okay, if you're playing somebody that serves not very big, maybe you can move in. You're staying uh, facing a huge server, go 10, 12 feet back. But your general spot should be five to seven feet back instead of on the baseline. He wins that tournament. Doesn't drop another set. Doesn't really bring it up the rest of the time. But I noticed that in each one of his matches from there, he's sneaking an early break. And I told him, the way you play, you sneak an early break. You're going to win a lot of 25 to 27 minute sets. You play lightning fast pace and you can hold so easy. So I think it's more crucial in the opening game that you're making returns. That can make a huge difference for your return game. He went on to a 27-1 and summer. And I believe that little change was the impetus of him winning the U.S. Open that summer of 2003. Little change made a huge difference. And I think, because when we talk about how small the, the margins can be in tennis, you know, sometimes you win 51%, 52% of the points, and, and that leads to a, a relatively routine win on the scoreboard. That's where making a small change, like getting, you know, moving back on the return so you can get a few more returns in play over the course of the match can maybe shift three or four or five swing points. And that that's the exact situation where, you know, maybe instead of pulling that tight one out against Saulnier, he ends up losing that and then, and then you know, doesn't nearly have the rest of the confidence going forward to, to go on and win the U.S. Open and, and also beat Fed uh, that summer in, in Montreal as well. Yeah, the only match that he lost that summer was to Tim Hedman in the semis of Washington, 7-6 and 30. He beat him the first round of the Open. But your brain, you know, is, is like a sponge. If you do something and you have a little bit of success, you have more belief to try and do things. All of a sudden, you you try something, you don't have success. Most of us, guys or girls, we instantly want to not do it. And so you have to learn to push through it. My favorite player for making small changes, and if you just look back at videos from 2-7, 2-8, 2-10, is Vamos Rafa. Rafael Nadal, from abbreviated motion on his serve, to his stance, to, to the swing motion, to even the forehand swing, he's made so many little changes, and also little changes at every level. I think it helped keep you more motivated to work hard, to want to make these little changes, and they inspire you. And don't gauge it by one day success. It's over time. And if it's also learning to be honest that like, I should make a little bit of change because I'm stuck here. I'm not moving forward with what I need to be doing. I think if you can, you know, see the example of a, of a Rafa or things or fed when he was what, 35, 36, making the changes to his racket and, and and his willingness to attack on the backhand. If you can see the you know the best in the history of the game, always thinking you know what are little ways that can can take my game to the next level. It just can't can't say enough how that should be the same mentality for for players of all of all levels. Always trying to think, okay, what sort of little changes can I make? And also just wanted to get back to because of your stories where you had Shiv. 
pointing out the situation with your back end or with you with Roddick. In both of those instances, you as a coach, Shiv as a coach with a fresh set of eyes, you guys hadn't been around each other for, for very long. And I think that can be, you know, a really big thing too. Sometimes if you have been, you know, feeling like in a bit of a rut, sometimes just that fresh set of eyes to notice things that you wouldn't notice otherwise can be really crucial. Also too, it's, a little subtlety, just the way you say it, and, and not saying it's a weakness. You know what we can do sure. to make this shot a little better, and gotta I, deliver I, it in, in in the right way. Yeah, exactly. And I I think that goes a long ways. At, and when you have a calm voice saying something, the belief goes more. Now it's time for the Q&A. First of all, thanks again for everyone sending their questions in. Keep sending them to winninguglier at gmail.com. I've, I've really enjoyed the back and forth dialogue on the emails too. Sometimes I, you know, I'm sorry if we don't get to your questions on the show, but I'm also, you know, trying to give, give little answers in email form as well. This first question, it, it's kind of the quintessential classic winning ugly situation of how do you find a way to beat someone that you play with regularly that always beats you? This specific case comes from Brett in Queensland, Australia. He says, I'm 39 and would describe my style as a defensive baseliner, but my opponent has even better defensive skills than I do, and he has better attacking skills. I try to keep my shots deep and wide to give him less opportunities to hit winners off short balls, but as I feel more pressure, I press more and make more unforced errors than I normally would in a match. Am I better off sticking to my strengths of counterpunching, or do I mix it up and try something different? In previous matches, I've mainly stuck to my style and not tried different tactics, such as coming to net. Interesting. I'm going to go to my second college coach. Alan Fox wrote a book, If I'm the Better Player, Why Don't I Win? He lost to this one guy, Larry Nagler, like 20-something times in a row before he finally beat him. He felt like he was a better player. I'm going to go to Steve Jameson, who I co-wrote Winning Ugly with. And so when I started studying club players, two guys that he plays, we're up on the terrace at the San Francisco Tennis Club watching them play. He's watching, but he's not watching and actually learning. I'm watching and I'm telling him, you know, this guy can't serve down the middle. This guy can only go backhand on the, you know, down the line. This guy could never go forehand. He's looking at me. He, he couldn't believe that I would actually sit there and dissect their game. So this is a huge thing for you. If the guy that you always lose to, what you need to do is watch him play somebody else. So then all of a sudden you can get, and hopefully it's somebody that maybe is possibly, you know, at least as good as him or beating him. So you have an understanding of how and what works tactically against him. And also too, when you watch, make notes. When I was 18, 19, when I traveled by myself, I always made little notes of my opponent's strengths and weaknesses. Players do the same under pressure, what they like. So what's really crucial, 
is understanding strengths and weaknesses. And obviously, if you haven't beaten them, you know, and you say you're not willing to get out of your comfort zone, okay, you, you might need to. But if the core of your game is defensive and movement, that was the core of my game. But what you need to understand is maybe tactically, if he is a defensive player, he feels comfortable playing against you. I, I can tell you as a defensive player, sometimes when I would play against a defensive player, it'd make you a little uncomfortable because then you got to try to be offensive minded, but wait for the right opportunity. Don't force when the opportunity isn't there. Be patient, wait for the opportunity. And if you need to come forward, come forward, but come forward when it's on your terms. But I can't tell you enough. If you can, go wherever he is playing. Hopefully he doesn't see you. Hide in the car. You must scout him. And hopefully you can learn some little things that you can try. And hopefully it's somebody that's giving him trouble. But you must scout him and understand his game better. Will help you understand and you will try some different things. Yeah, that's a great point. It's... Because we can get so in our heads when it's only our match against our opponent and having that new perspective, I think, could could lead you to, to learn a lot. I, I just had this funny thought in my head of like, since if the guy knows him well, like they're good friends, you can show up in a in a hat and a fake mustache, go like incognito mode and do some, do some scouting so he doesn't even know. <laughs> but um, moving along, got a question from Marjeet, who... She teaches both tennis and yoga, and she's always looking for a way to make a connection between those two disciplines for her students. And uh, I'm paraphrasing the question, but she asks, could you expand on the importance of focusing on breathing while you're playing? She says she's noticing more and more in her lessons that this is a skill that needs to be taught from the get-go. And she specifically wanted to know what you would recommend breathing-wise to recover after a long point when you're especially winded. Love it. So as a kid, you know, I never even knew anything about yoga or breathing, but I played so many sports and I think I just learned to breathe. And when I played, I would take these huge breaths sometimes in between points, pretty much just to calm myself down. I would go on a little walkabout, take these huge breaths, so many kids now that I work with and adults, I find myself so often saying this phrase that you're not playing tennis underwater. They're, it's almost like they're not breathing, you know, on a four or five shot rally. You're going to pull a ripcord on the point. It's going to make you make a funny decision. You're going to get uptight. You're going to get tense. So I tell so many students now, take yoga. Learn you to, do? I do. Okay. Even though right. I don't do yoga myself, okay. I have told umpteen students because learn the breathing from your core. It helps you relax. It's such an integral part of recovering between points and during the points is taking, you know, in through the mouth, out through the nose. And it helps relax you. I think it, it might be the other way. We're going to have to hit the books on that uh, one. But I think it's in, in through, through the, the nose, nose, out through the back. <laughs> Actually, though, you know what it is? Is because I have a stuffy, you know, I've always had the deviated septum. So I don't really breathe well out through my nose. No, you're a little bit more of a mouth breather. Yeah. As Zoe, our, my youngest sister, yeah. your daughter would, would so call, most people, call so you out on. 
So it's really important, especially as a kid. And I think that the the yoga will help you relax, kind of de-stresses you. But more than anything, if you're not really breathing in between shots and you're in a five or six shot rally, panic is going to set in. And so that's, and it makes you tense. So I see this more now with club players and juniors than I've ever seen it before. Yeah, I think just for, I think a, a decent amount of people, once that long point's over, you're going to be huffing and puffing. But I think it, it does actually surprise me. Even players at higher levels that aren't really taking those good rhythmic breaths, uh, you know, during the point and making sure that, that they're really working the breath, you know, every shot. Because that's, I think, what, what really helps keep keep the wind in you, keeps you, you know, from being out of breath, is always remembering to breathe every shot. I was just telling a girl last week, and I've told quite a few players this, pick a spot on the fence or somewhere that you have to walk to and go touch it. And when you have to go walk and go touch this spot, the entire time, even breathing. So maybe you've lost a point, but now you're trying to recover. And visually, when you're seeing something, you got to go touch it but the breathing is crucial. And then hopefully that'll kind of get you back to where you've got your second win back. But also picking something out visually and focusing on the breathing can really kind of de-stress you. And then one other yoga thing, another player that that we both work with where I, I kind of serve as the hitting partner and you coach, and he likes to come in and serve in volley. And I know you were thinking of ways for him to be more agile at net and have that that core strength and I the first thing that came to my mind was I think yoga is the perfect thing to kind of help develop that core strength so you can dig out those volleys from a little bit more uncomfortable positions core strength flexibility breathing I mean serving volleying is so much more difficult than doing anything else but breathing is 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 such an integral part of tennis and it's something you just take for granted and actually, I, I really liked one thing uh, Margie uh, added at the end of her email was she she said how in your in the book and Winning Ugly, uh, you refer to it as breathing like you have asthma. But she likes to uh, or, or prefers the term ocean breaths. You think of it as like the crashing of the wave is the exhale and then the receding of the tide is the inhale. Being where we live now in Malibu, right by the ocean, uh, and actually just jumped in this morning, it felt great. I, I like that term a lot better. It has a, has a nice ring to it. Margie crushes me 6-0 on <laughs> oh, my reference that's a to her, her reference. I like it a lot. Got a good one here, a little bit more of a practical one from Ralph R. He, well, not that breathing isn't practical, by the way. It's, it's very fundamental, but <laughs> tennis, tennis, you know, specific. He says, I have trouble handling low slice shots and hard flat shots. I often try to hit topspin shots in response, which I think is the wrong shot choice because the ball is so low. Any advice for how to handle these low shots? I'd like to think of a a phrase, return to sender. If I get a low slice coming to me, I'm going to play a low slice, especially because I'm a one-hander on a backhand. If you're a two-hander... If you can get your other, you know, hand underneath, Andre actually had one of the greatest low two-handed backhands. A lot of players, let's say Andy Murray, will always go to a one-handed slice. I think the key on a slice is trying to send the ball back to your opponent the same way. 
a hard flat shot. For some reason, so many club players, when a hard ball comes at them, if it's coming at you probably hard, you know, maybe it doesn't have as much spin, it's not as much in the air, they decelerate on their swing. They kind of take, you know, a check swing. When a, a ball is coming at you fairly aggressively, you need to take an aggressive swing back. But you know what? Maybe just pick a big target and, you know, try to go back the same direction. If it's coming back hard cross, go cross. But don't try to put a ball that's not very high, a lot of air on the shot. And it, it's easier to create topspin off of a flat ball than it is off of a low slice. You can create topspin off of a flat ball. No, no question about it. But I do think, you know, especially if you have, you know, very far over on the grips, full Western grips, it's difficult on low slices to try to hit heavy topspin. So I say return to sender. And hearing Ralph's name, you know, <laughs> you know, there was a Ralph, honest to goodness, when I was 13, 14. His name was Ralph Vargas. And he, I used to play him every once in a while. He was that tricky lefty. He was like 10 years older than me. I, I was almost, you know, I had visions of that tricky lefty, <laughs> you know, from way back. Oh, funny, funny. Uh, one more, we got time for one more question, I think. Will P, who's a 5-0 player, so high-level player. Solid player. He's asking... Do you have tips for returning serve in doubles? It's probably my biggest weakness overall, the return, but in doubles especially. So he's a 5-0, and the weakest part of his game is the return. Yeah. I'm going to say a word to him right away, tinker. Whether or not, you know, I was one of those guys that favored, you know, my forehand. So maybe that, you know, you need to be running around if you're in doubles you know, that maybe that you have that opportunity. Also, I think some players get stuck. Okay, I'm only playing the deuce or I'm only playing the ad. I returned better and I, I was, you know, maybe I held myself back. I returned better in the ad court, but didn't play nearly as well on my second shot as I did in the deuce court where I didn't return as well. So I think it's really important that you learn, first of all, which side you're better on, you know, the forehand side or the backhand side. Should I be up? Should I be back? Should I be taking more forehands? But experiment, tinker, do everything that you can to understand your strengths and weakness on the shot because literally every point starts with a serve and return. And if you're at a 5-0 and the return is the weakest part of your game, it's going to hold your doubles game back dearly. So that's something... I would be working on also too, if you can get one of those serving arms or get somebody to serve to you and work on your return. I say, don't try to be overzealous with your return. Just try to get it back in play and get it away from the net net. And I think that brings us full circle to where we were at in the beginning is just that willingness to, to make changes and willingness to tinker and try new things. I think the return, the, the, the serve and return are both great places to start with that because the point hasn't begun yet. Sometimes even on a micro level, trying different things and giving your opponents different looks over the course of a match can be huge on the return. Small changes, Buck, can make a huge difference. And sometimes as coaches, we're guilty 
of making too big of a change. You know, maybe taking somebody on a grip from a continental to a semi-Western. And I'll go back to something that I feel is crucial as a tennis player at all levels is being honest with yourself. So many players, when I ask them what their strengths and weaknesses are, they'll tell me their strengths. And then they'll tell me, you know, and they're very hesitant to say anything about their weakness. But I do feel like a lot of us overestimate our strengths and we really, you know, feel that the weakness isn't what it is. And that was me when I was 18. So many players, if all of a sudden they could just realize, you know what, if I could just fix a little bit my ball toss, you know what, cut down my backswing on my forehand, if I can all of a sudden put just a smidge more topspin by moving the grip, these little changes sometimes can make a huge difference. You see it in the pros, it can make a huge difference in juniors and club players. And sometimes we sacrifice when you're a young player winning for making improvements in our game. Totally. And then that's what can hold you back in the long run. My guy at the Malibu Racquet Club, I just saw him again yesterday struggling with uh, a ball toss. Poor, poor guy. <laughs> and, and I was thinking to myself, if he could just take a week, don't play for a week, just work on the ball toss, instantly he would change that. And and so that's the mentality. You're never too old to make a change. And the change can ch- lift your game to another level that you didn't think was there. There's a, there's a good term I, I recently came across, which is called having a, a beginner's mindset, which means no matter how advanced you get, you know, in tennis is the medium in this situation, but it can apply to all walks of life. No matter how advanced you get, you always want to look at, what you're doing with that beginner's mindset, which means letting go of preconceived notions and trying to, to see problems with fresh eyes. And I, th- I think, you know, Rafa, for instance, is a great example of, you know, one of the best of all time that has this beginner's mindset. And I, I just think it's sometimes letting go of that pride a little bit and just always be looking to reevaluate. Hitting that refresh button that you got on the computer, like hitting the refresh button to start the second set and whether or not you won it, or lost it. Another one of my absolute favorite things about Rafa. When they're talking to him at the French Open, after his first round match, and they start already asking him about the quarters or semis, he gets so annoyed that he's only focused on his next opponent. And he doesn't overlook anybody. He doesn't, do, and, and that's his mindset. And that's such a beautiful mindset to have. Hit the refresh button, focus on, for our guy that's trying to beat that guy that he can't beat, invest more time. Find out that guy's strengths and weaknesses against somebody else. You will get him, but you're just going to have to invest more time. Buck says wear a mustache and, and to fake disguise, but you Doesn't will get him. probably have to come to that. 